Hey everyone, and welcome to my new show, Generation Discontent, where we'll be discussing the most prominent political and cultural issues that affect us young people today in 2020. Speaking of 2020, can we all just sit back for a minute and acknowledge how much of a mess this year has been? I mean, could it get any worse? World War III almost happened, Australia nearly burned to the ground, we're in the midst of the worst economic downturn since 2008, and young basketball players are being abused at NBA training academies in China. By the way, is it just me that thinks China's heavy investment into basketball is a massive waste of time? They might as well focus on a sport that they would do well in, like baseball. After all, they did take out the whole world with one bat. But in all seriousness, 2020 is not just the first bad year for many young Americans. 2020 is just one of the many bad years that countless young Americans have endured. Today I won't be talking about how the pandemic, recession, or even election has negatively impacted the American youth. Instead, I'll be discussing with you why young people have felt miserable, neglected, and disaffected for many years, what caused this crisis, and who can fix it. I'm Brent Allen, and you're watching Generation Discontent. Now, you might have smirked a little bit when I said that young people have been miserable, neglected, and disaffected for many years. You might have even laughed out loud because you pictured the stereotypical millennial and spends their days Ubering to Starbucks to order a capitalist pumpkin spice latte and then tweet about how capitalism sucks. But like a stereotype, that's far from the truth. And when the reason as to why young people are so miserable is actually discussed, it's often misattributed as the result of, you guessed it, social media. Studies show that doctors are diagnosing more millennials with depression. Several factors are playing a role, including use of social media and student loan debt. And then if teenagers have anxiety and depression, I think we should take away their social media. Why do you think depression is so common nowadays? Uh, that's mainly just because everybody's into their social media and tech things. Encouraging just the, the, them to just turn off the phones and unplug themselves. And it's not easy for parents. I counsel a lot of parents and what they tell me is it, there's, it's just impossible. The kids learn how to sneak around and not do it. You know, for a parent counselor, I'm very surprised she's just now realizing that kids sneak around and don't follow rules. That's like being a teacher not knowing that you teach students. Or being a librarian not knowing that you work in a library or working at Target, not knowing that you give away free TVs. But they are right about one thing. Social media is a problem. Social media is contributing to the historic rates of suicide, anxiety, and self-harm. I'm not dismissing it, but what I am dismissing is the notion that social media is the main cause of young people's unhappiness. Now you might think to yourself, or yell out loud, Brent, that's insane. How could something as toxic and degrading as social media not be the central cause of this problem? And to answer your question, Social media is a reflection of the toxic and degrading culture that's present in both yours and my life. In other words, social media is an effect, not a cause of young people's unhappiness today. So what's caused this toxic and degrading culture that I'm talking about? And how is it even happening when we're living through the best times in human history? We have a life expectancy of eight decades, the vast majority of Americans have access to plenty of food, a car, and a TV, and we can communicate with people on the other side of the globe with the click of a button. If someone from the year 1920 would time travel to 2020, they would think that they just died and woke up in heaven. And then they would find out what Fortnite kids are and hop back in the time machine and never come back. But the cause of this toxic and degrading culture is the result of two things. Us young Americans have lost the values and meaning that make us happy people. But where does America's core values derive from? The answer? 
the philosophical teachings from two ancient cities, Athens and Jerusalem. Athens represents the reason, logic, and science taught by Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Jerusalem represents faith, morality, and religion. The ideals from both of these ancient cities remains in constant tension and are the building blocks for Western civilization. These Western values, combined with our American values, is the reason we live in the most prosperous, moral, and successful nation to ever exist. Now that you know what Western values are, you might still be wondering what those American values are. Liberty, equality, individualism, and chief among them, limited government. So what purpose do all of these traditions, beliefs, and values even serve? Is it just a waste of time? A way to guilt people at the bottom into following rules that only benefit those at the top? Bill Maher, a comedian and political commentator, famously said that, quote, Religion is a bureaucracy between man and God. And it's this language, this kind of language, that's caused us to be in the situation we're in today. The basic misunderstanding that these Western and American values that I just talked about with you are a waste of time and don't mean anything is the exact reason why so many of us young people have lost any meaning in our lives. The lack of meaning that so many young Americans are going through is the main cause of our unhappiness and discontent. Think of it like you're asking your teacher a question. If you're confused on something and ask her to explain it, you'll get the answer to your question and do well on your test. But if you don't ask her what you're confused on and end up doing bad on your test, you'll look behind you one day only to be startled because she's breathing down your neck and creepily whispering, Are you using your time wisely? The same thing goes for creating a meaning in life for young people. Our values create tradition, hope, and community. And tradition, hope, and community creates meaning. If you remove one of those things, you end up with a lack of meaning, just like if you don't ask a question, you'll end up with a lack of personal space. Which brings me back to the main point. The degradation and abandonment of these Western and American values, which results in a lack of meaning, is the very reason why the culture us young people have grown up in is so, so toxic. It is the very reason why suicide is the leading cause of death among 15 to 24 year olds. It's the very reason why suicidal thinking, depression, and rates of self-injury have doubled in the last decade. It's, it is the reason why between 2000 and 2016, men had a 21% increase in suicide, while women had a 50% increase. So why is this happening? Why are things so good, but we're throwing it all away? When I said our values are being degraded and abandoned, that's true. However, they're not being degraded and abandoned for no reason. This is happening because our Western and American values and traditions are under attack. But before we ask who's attacking these Western values and traditions, let's first acknowledge that young Americans are not just unhappy, we're also incredibly angry. Most of this anger is because we feel neglected and disaffected by the current political establishment. As of 2017, 76% of 18 to 29 year olds didn't trust the federal government. And their distrust in Congress was even worse at 80%. So why are so many young Americans this angry at the establishment? While some of us may genuinely feel as though we're being directly harmed by politicians, the vast majority of us are so angry at the system for the same reason we're so angry at ourselves. The culture you and me are living in is so incredibly toxic and degrading. Now you might understand where I was coming from when I said that our failing culture is the cause is causing this discontent and despair we're seeing in so many young Americans today, but you might not go as far to say that the culture is the reason for our distrust in government. I understand why you or anyone would think that given the way or given the stats I just showed you. However, the stats take into account how many of us distrust the government and why we distrust the government, but it doesn't take into account the external factors that have influenced or shaped our values, which then impact our opinion on the matter. So what are these values? 
If countless young people have abandoned Western and American values and traditions, what were they replaced with? Don't they have to be replaced with something? And to find that answer, you have to go back to the year 1916, when Italian socialist Antonio Gramsci suggested that World War I's failure to create international Marxist revolution was the result of culture. Gramsci blamed a relatively pro-capitalist culture in many countries to justify why these Marxist revolutions failed. In 1937, he died in an Italian prison under Benito Mussolini's fascist regime. However, his philosophy was embraced before his death by the Frankfurt School. Now, the Frankfurt School was a group of German philosophers in the 1920s, and they were essentially a think tank. Fast forward to 1933 with the rise of, not the, of the Nazi Party, and the Frankfurt School leader, Max Horkheimer, and other mem members were expelled from Germany. But they made their way to the United States and relocated the institute to Columbia University in New York City in the year 1935. So why is this significant in shaping the values of young people? Because the Frankfurt Institute attempted to destroy Western civilization and spread Marxism. But there was just one minor problem for them. Spreading Marxism in the 1940s and 1950s America was just about as hard as convincing an Emily that posting a black square on Instagram doesn't end racism. You see, for a successful Marxist revolution to take place, a few crucial things need to happen. The vast majority of the working class needs to be angry with the system and committed to communism, and vast swaths of the population must lose hope, faith, and meaning in order to believe that Marxist utopianism can fulfill those three things. This was the entire premise of Karl Marx's book, Das Kapital, in which he wrote about how he thought society would work, i.e., class warfare would break out and eventually destroy the capitalist infrastructure. So, why wouldn't this work in America at the time? Well, that's easy to answer. The American working class was content with the system, and the majority of Americans had hope, faith, and meaning. In 1949, only 14% of Americans thought America should go more in the direction of socialism, and in 1950, about three-quarters of Americans belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. Okay, so this means that a socialist revolution in this country is impossible, right? No. No, there's still a way to do it, but it would take many years to kill capitalism and a lot of patience, but it is still very possible to do, and that's by changing the culture. Horkheimer argued that systems had to be deconstructed in order to make room for that social change. He coined the term critical theory and, and described it as, quote, suspicious of the very categories of better, useful, appropriate, productive, and valuable as those are understood in the present order. This present order needed to change, Horkheimer said, because, quote, the wretchedness of our, of our own time is connected with the structure of society, end quote, and the way to change it is to tear it down. It is not a coincidence that many forms of university study dedicated to various alleged victim groups, black studies, Jewish studies, and LGBT studies, all find a home under the critical studies rubric. So how is this applicable to young people's discontent and anger towards the system? Well, the 1960s was the perfect time to get a cultural Marxist revolution to start picking up steam. Yes, there was an inordinate amount of racial tension, distrust in government, and activism in that decade. And don't get me wrong, that certainly made it a lot easier to really get a cultural Marxist revolution started. But what really got the ball rolling was the formation of the New Left. What's the New Left, you may ask? The New Left was a name associated with the radical Marxist movement that took place in the 60s and was largely founded by Herbert Marcuse, a German Marxist philosopher who was associated with the Frankfurt School. But there was something a little bit different about the New Left. Unlike the Old Left, the New Left focused on social issues like feminism, racism, gay rights, and abortion rights. 
After all, it is a lot easier to divide people based on gender, race, and sexual orientation than it is by social class. Now that you know what the new left is, you might still be wondering who was part of it. Yes, there was the hippies, the anarchists, and white panthers, but at its core was the Students for a Democratic Society. This was a national student activist organization in the 1960s that had over 300 campus chapters and 30,000 supporters. But if you do a little bit of digging, you'll find out that before its name was the Students for a Democratic Society, it was called the Student League for Industrial Democracy, which was the League for Industrial Democracy's student group. The League for Industrial Democracy was founded in, founded in 1921 as a successor to the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. So how did Americans, young Americans as well, go from being extremely religious and content with the system in the 1950s to being secular Marxists that hated the system and had a heavy pre presence on college campuses in the 1960s? And to answer that question, you have to go back to my original argument, that our Western and American values are being abandoned. In the 1950s, many young people thought that the de facto rules that their parents had imposed on them were too harsh and strict. So what did they do? They started a counterculture. This counterculture was an anti-establishment cultural phenomenon that ushered in new forms of music, fashion, and even changed the way in which people interacted with one another. The damaging part of the 1960s and 70s counterculture, however, was the rejection of the values I just talked about. Roughly 68% of Americans attended church in the 1970s through 1990s, and just half of Americans go to church today. That number's even lower for young Americans. But how is a Marxist cultural revolution responsible for this decline in religion? Well, the question should be phrased a bit differently. It should be, how did this decline in religion morph into a, cult a Marxist cultural revolution, which made this decline even worse? And to answer that, you have to go back to the 60s and 70s counterculture in which countless young people abandoned these Western and American values and their meaning in life along with it. George Orwell said it best in his 1940 review of Mein Kampf, in which he tried to explain why Hitler rose to power and why young Germans signed up for Nazism when it was clearly a deeply evil philosophy that guaranteed blood and pain. He wrote, quote, Hitler, because of his own joyless mind, he feels it with exceptional strength, knows that human beings don't only want comfort, safety, short working hours, hygiene, birth control, and in general, common sense. They also, at least intermittently, want struggle and self-sacrifice, not to mention drums, flags, and loyalty parades, end quote. In other words, there's a yearning in the human soul to fight for something and make your life matter. And when young Americans abandon religion, it's not a matter of if they'll turn to Marxist utopianism to find their meaning in this world. It's a matter of when they'll turn to Marxist utopianism to fulfill their meaning. So what's the solution? Well, I talked to Noah Ring about that just a few days ago. Noah's an author, podcast host, founder of Ring X Media, and teenage political activist fighting for a bold conservative future. Alrighty, I am here with the man, the myth, the legend, Noah Ring. Noah, how have you been, man? I'm good, Brent. Glad to be on with you. Yeah, anytime. Uh, so my first question for you is, why did you get into politics? Uh, look, look, Brent, the reason I got into politics was simple. You know, I think that I think that you and me and people people around our age, I think we, we're the future of this country. And it takes people like our age to get involved and to, to tell, start telling these these politicians and these these political leaders, like, hey, this is what we want. You know, you represent us too. Just because you may not be 18 doesn't mean that you don't represent us. Just because we can't vote for you doesn't mean you don't represent us. You do. And now, of course, me being 19, I can vote. Um, that, that's really why I wanted to make sure that people in our generation had a voice and somebody was lobbying for our for our concerns as hard as they lobby for others 
Uh, so kind of a follow-up question to that would be, what really motivated you to get into politics? Was there any really, at such a young age, was there really any, you know, specific events? Was was there any kind of things that kind of triggered it? Or was it just kind of... So one thing that anyone who, who knows me personally can tell you is I love to argue. And in politics, there's always an argument somewhere. Um, so, so that, and then, so I, like I saw, I, I remember, uh, I remember I was in, I was in AP government and Mr. T Mr. Sparks, my, my AP government teacher, he, he told me, he, he said that the U S government owes about, I want to say it was $57,000 at the time for every man, woman, and child alive. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, that's for everyone alive. But you know, that's, that's, it's going to get even higher in our lifetime because obviously the government's not spending less money. They're spending more. Um, so that, that's one big thing that got me involved was, Hey, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have to have such high taxes in the future because politicians of the day are spending, are spending our future away, Brent. Um, that, that's a really big one. Another one is, you know, just walking through the halls of my high school, walk through the halls of other high schools and just seeing all these, all these kids who have, who have the ambition to go and start businesses or go and be professional athletes or go and just chase their dreams. And I, it just gets me thinking of how great this country is. I mean, my grandpa was in, was in Vietnam and he's told me stories of that he, of what he had to do overseas, sacrificing for other people's freedom. Um, and that's, that's one thing that is, that has always, always motivated me is, you know, our men and women overseas fighting for our freedom and other people's freedom. We're the only country in the world really who, who leads the charge and not only fighting for our own freedoms, but fighting for other freedom. Sure, UK and France, they all get involved after we get involved, but they don't get involved before. America is a beacon of hope and freedom around the world. And the men and women are the women, men and women in uniform and those, those uh, kids in our generation who, who want to grow up and be successful and live in a free country, those, that's my motivation. Because not everyone, we have to understand that not everyone's going to get politically motivated. Not everyone's going to get politically involved. And that's why it takes people who, who are politically involved to be good good servants, good public servants, and to fight for, fight for everyone, even if they're never going to get thanked for it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really love about kind of what you're doing, and, you know, you really took those words to action, I think it was last year, you published a book, The ABCs of Politics, Through the Eyes of a, of a High Schooler. What is that book all about for the people that so, don't know? So I had received, basically, so I had these, I had these paragraphs and essays that I would send to people around my age and even older than like my followers and stuff, whenever they would say, Hey, Noah, I'm, you know, I'm a teenager and you know, I, I'm conservative, but I don't really know how to defend it. I, I know, I know what I believe, but I'm not quite sure why. Uh, so I'd say, Hey, you know, I, and after, after answering the same question on the second amendment, abortion, low taxes, whatever it may be, you kind of, you kind of get start to get a batter and you kind of just kind of save it to your notes. And then the question even, even started getting asked by some of my older followers, and some of my, some people like that. So I said, maybe what if I put all these together and just put it, put all the thoughts together get it published. That way people can, can find it and people can buy it. And those people can, can have these to, to, to give to other people and say, Hey, you know, this kid's around your age. Why don't you read it? Maybe, you know, because I think that one thing that you and I, that you and I've talked about uh, in the past is people our age only really listen to people around our age. We don't listen to our parents or grandparents with as much tenacity as we listen to, you know, people on the age of uh, CJ Pearson, people like that who are around our age doing these things because we just, you know, listen, when your parents say something, I'm sure this has happened to you, Brent, you, you felt like cleaning your room and then your mom comes in and says, Hey, Brent, clean your room. And now you're like, oh, I don't want to clean it anymore. 
Yeah. So being able to be that voice, and that's the one thing that I'm doing with his media companies, being able to be that voice that teenagers can listen to and that, that grandparents can say, hey, I know you're tired of me telling you how important the national debt is or how important you know, the capital gains tax is. Why don't you listen to this 19-year-old from Georgia talk about it? It's just something that putting that together, it's just, I, I always call myself the buffer between the generations. You know, I can relate to older generations because obviously I have older family members and I know how they think. And, but they can also, I can relate to, to their kids and their grandkids and be able to say, hey, like they can listen to my message and say, oh, well, I you know, I never thought about that we're predicted to be paying a trillion dollars in interest in the next decade, just in interest alone. I never even thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair answer. And, you know, I think our sort of vision and hopes for the Republican Party is very similar. Like, I'm sure the viewers just kind of already know this just by hearing both of us talk about these issues. Uh, so that brings me to the next question. What can really Republicans, what can they do to win over the support of young voters? Well, I think that the Republican Party has made has made strides in the last year or so and and getting more youth vote. But one thing that is that is very that I think I think the Republican Party needs to do about two to three things. I think first and foremost, they need to they need to look at people like yourself, people like me, people like CJ Pearson and say, what can we do to get these kids on in front of other teenagers? What can we do to prop up these kids? Because like like we just talked about, it, it's going to be hard for, you know, 80 year old Mitch McConnell to relate to an 18 year old in high school. It's going to be hard, you know, and even even, you know, Mitch McConnell's on the extreme on top in, in terms of age. Let's even go to someone like, you know, Jim Jordan, who's in his 50s or early 60s. It's going to be hard for them to relate. Now, of course, when it gets to someone like Matt Gates or somebody like like uh, Madison Cawthorn, it gets a little easier. But it gets even easier if those kids are 18 freshmen in college or still in high school or still in college, it gets even easier. So finding these kids and these teenagers and propping them up to a position where they can just, where they can talk to our generation is going to be big. So I think people like the Trump campaign and other prominent Republicans running, running for reelection or election or campaigning for the president need to, need to, you know, find these teenagers throughout their, throughout their respective States and get them a platform and, you know, get them on. Uh, And second, what we need to, do is we need to tap in a bit of celebrities who are, who are liberal that's fair but there are a good bit of celebrities who are conservative one that comes to mind is post malone i mean he he hated la so he moved to the middle of utah so he could shoot guns all day you're trying to tell me he's not conservative you, oh, wow i didn't know that yeah yeah he he he, he talks about it on his podcast with joe rogan and then another one that uh you know we really need to look at is these country music stars as you as you can probably attest to country music is something that is that is kind of made kind of made its way into mainstream nowadays with with you know the country music has changed a lot recently it's got more of a, a pop tone to it but these these country music stars are still from southeast georgia tennessee are you trying to tell me morgan wallen believes in bernie sanders i i'm just not gonna buy it so getting to people like this like like morgan wallen like like thomas red luke bryan that you know teenagers love we love to listen to their songs finding ways to to prop them up, not, not so much as coming out to endorse President Trump or coming out to endorse, you know, whoever it may be, because they're not going to do that based on their brand, but just finding a way that they can, you know, spread the message. And then another way is to ensure that Christianity makes it into our generation. I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm sure you're a Christian as well, Brent. Mm-hmm. But Christianity and conservatism line up 100%. So finding ways that we can promote the message of people like Sadie Robertson, people like Noah Heron, where we can get that message out. If, all, if we can get all three of those things, 
working in unison, the future is very bright because like I've lined out in the book, uh, we're the live and let live generation. We're a generation that we enjoy. We enjoy having a good time, but we also enjoy other people having a good time as long as they're not harming our good time. My final question is kind of broader than the last question. It's I'm really kind of referring to, you know, the politics and the culture. Uh, but what do you think the future of American conservatism will look like and how will young people impact that? Well, uh, if, if we look at it, you know, I, I just I mentioned on my podcast uh, that that will be coming out in a few days. Uh, you guys should check it out. Um, you know, I, I asked Will Chamberlain this exact same question. And he told me his answer is something that I'm going to repeat here because I think he's 100% correct. You know, the age of what, what I'm going to call Trumpism, it's not going away. The Republican Party and the, or the conservative movement, they're, they're, they hopefully they go hand in hand. It's going to be a very populist, a very populist future. It's going to be a future where, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, the Republican Party is just as deep into the hands of lobbyists as the Democratic Party is. However, with the rise of internet, with the rise of the internet and rise of social media, the Republican watchdogs haven't, they don't have as much power, the same as the Democratic watchdogs. So I think the future of the conservative movement is going to be people like me, like yourself, who we're just in this really for the right, for the right ideas, because with everything, with all the crowdfunding available now, and everybody's, everybody can create a business at their house uh, and be successful with it, it's really, we're going to see a lot of people in the conservative movement who are who are who are just true and pure and have good good intentions. But then, again, further into your questions, I think what you were really asking is, I think the future of conservatism, hopefully at least, is is what a Ron Paul or a Rand Paul preaches. You know, leave us alone. Let's not go start new wars, but let's have a strong military. You know, as uh, as Roosevelt said, you know, walk quietly but carry a big stick, or walk softly but carry a big stick. Sorry. So I think I think it's big stick diplomacy mixed with uh, states' rights because we're getting too big as a country for the federal government to be efficient. I mean, it hasn't been efficient in centuries. So I think we're going to see a move to states' rights, hopefully. And then we're just going to have a, uh, a very live and let live government where the federal government does what, it do what it's supposed to do and ensuring that states aren't going to war with each other and we're not getting invaded and that states aren't, aren't, uh, aren't infringing on our individual rights. I think that's the future of American conservatism, and I really, I really do hope it is. Completely agree. Noah Ring, everybody. Thank you so much for coming on, Noah. Of course. Anytime, Brent. Love to have it. Or glad to be here. Sorry. You're good. Thank you. So what solutions can we learn from the interview you just heard with Noah? Changing the culture is certainly a great solution, but one of the best ways to do that is by doing exactly what the left did to take over our culture. Use the moral argument. If you ask a conservative, why don't you like socialism or Marxism? Nine out of ten times they'll respond with, it doesn't work. The only problem with that is that people don't care about what works and what doesn't work. People don't care about what's efficient and what's inefficient. People care about what's right and what's wrong. People care about what's moral and immoral. During the Spanish Civil War, the communists were supposedly dying with the word Stalin carved into their lips. When was the last time you've seen somebody die with the words free market or lower taxes carved into their lips? Now, this doesn't mean you have to go full Heath Ledger and carve everything that you like about Trump or America onto your lips because that's creepy for obvious reasons. But what it does mean is that conservatives need to start pitching their case in terms of morality, because that is the only way we are going to win over young people. The reason Marxism is rising again is because it says, we're more moral, we'll build a utopia, and you can be a part of that building that utopia no matter how miserable you are, and it doesn't matter if we dragged your family off to the gulag and murdered them. All that matters is that you are part of something great. And that's not what America is about. 
that's not what the founders had in mind for this country. So if you want to make America great again, you have to make yourself and your family great again. The way to make this country great again is by being a decent person without trying to grab the levers of government and using them to shape humanity. And if we're not able to do that, if we're not able to make a moral argument to ensure and protect liberty and freedom for future generations to come, then 2020 is going to be the first of many terrible years for us young Americans. Thank you for watching the first episode of Generation Discontent. New episodes will be posted every Saturday. And since you stuck around this long, you might as well write a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to follow me at Brent underscore Allen 94 on Twitter and Noah at the Noah Ring also on Twitter. Generation Discontent is brought to you by Ring X Media. Go check out the other Ring X Media podcasts.